I pay homage to the Buddha. I pay homage to the Dhamma. I pay homage to the Sangha. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for choosing to spend your Sunday here with us virtually at IBMC. Today I'd like to talk about something I came across, I don't know, a few weeks ago, I think. I came across uh, someone trying to to teach their own and share their own brand of of buddhism but like not traditional buddhism you know a cool hip new fresh buddhism you know it's got that mm, new car smell to it you know it's the what's the good stuff and uh one of the things that that this person said about their particular brand of buddhism was that if you studied their kind of buddhism You'd be able to tame your mind without taming your life. And as if it were some kind of Zen Buddhist koan, I've just been thinking about it day after day, like, what does it mean? What does it mean? Tame your mind without taming your life. What does it mean? Now, on the one hand, the meaning is clear that oftentimes uh, there are people who come to Buddhism and see 2,600 years of tradition and decide that they don't like tradition very much, that they like things to be new and, and modern and to sound a certain way, be a certain way. And that's fine. But there's also um, a tendency sometimes, I think, that is a tendency that I also see in myself, at least when I was uh, much newer to Buddhism when I was younger, uh, a kind of uh, buffet spirituality mindset. I'm just going to pick and choose the things I like and, and discard the rest and, and things like that. And we can talk about all of those things and those implications and the pluses and, and minuses, and it, it can be a fruitful discussion. But I think the, that underneath that, there is an assumption, uh, a belief that perhaps is uh, a bit more unsettling, which is the idea that one can follow the path without taming their lives, and also, a part of the catchphrase I think I forgot to, to leave out there was the idea that this particular new hip kind of Buddhism is all about freedom, which is why you can tame your mind without taming your life. And so underneath that assumption as well is, is the idea, the belief that Buddhism, as it's been, been transmitted from the Buddha that we have in these texts that we study, that we derive our practice from, is itself not about freedom, which couldn't be further from the truth. That the whole enterprise of the Dhamma, the whole effort that, 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 we, that we put into it, the dedication that we have to the path, 
is because there's a goal at the end, a promise of real freedom, of real peace, of true happiness. And that's what we're after. That when the Buddha began teaching, when he started the the turning of the wheel of Dhamma, he did so because he knew that each of us, we live our life striving for happiness. That ultimately what we're looking to be is happy. And when we really look at our motivations for any of the things that we do, in there is the belief that if we have this thing, if we do this thing, ah, something in us will stop craving so much, stop wanting so much. It'll be sated, it'll be at peace, and yet we find that it doesn't. And so the Buddha then does teach a path to freedom, of unbinding. But again, what does it even mean to be free? What is freedom? It seems a lot of the time that people have some odd notions of what freedom is. You know, it's like three-year-old's freedom. Mom, dad, parent, whoever, leaves the child alone for ten minutes to take a phone call, he's got stuff to do, comes back into the kitchen, all the cupboards are open, and the three-year-old's covered head to toe in peanut butter. That's freedom right there, right? So there is this belief that freedom is about doing all the things that you want or having the ability to do all the things you want and to be unchecked and unsupervised in that. But then there's also the idea that freedom might also be uh, free of consequence, which not even the three-year-old covered in peanut butter head-to-toe is free from. There will definitely be consequences, at the very least a proper scrubbing down from head-to-toe. So when the Buddha is talking about freedom, it's not freedom of consequence, because we understand that kama vipaka is something that works in the world. Cause and effect works in the world. That our actions always have consequences, but that those consequences can be good, and those consequences can also be bad. And the path itself is fabricated, just a technical way of saying that the path itself is built in our intentions built in our motivations, built in our mind, the things that we do with our mind and the things we do with our body. So freedom then can't be free of consequence. And because we have a particular agenda in the kind of happiness we try to achieve, a happiness that is secure, a happiness that is constant, and also a happiness that is not dependent on others, doesn't take away from others, is harmless and blameless, to use the language of the Buddha. What we find then is that we're also not free to do anything we want either, because we have to keep in mind how others are impacted, how others are affected. And I spoke a bit about this last month, and talking about uh, Hiri Anotapa, talking about um, Shame and compunction is one way of translating it, but we can also talk about it as uh, conscience and concern. The, the very idea of having a conscience and having concern for others. So then freedom, is, as I understand it from looking at the Buddha's teachings and after having practiced uh, a number of years, is we're looking at freedom from defilement 
freedom from greed, freedom from hatred, freedom from delusion and ignorance. That's what we're looking to be free from, free of effluence, free of defilements, free of a, of a troubled mind that seeks out happiness in all the wrong places. And in seeking out that, that kind of freedom, seeking out that, that kind of peace, it requires something of us. I think one of the, the downfalls of living in a, a consumerist society is that we often think about what we, what we get from a practice, what we get from a belief, what we get from something that we spend our time doing. But I think it's also important to, to think about what something might require. What something might require of us. And in this way, talking about the Buddhist path, we're talking about something that requires us to live a certain way. And that's something I actually find refreshing and powerful about the Dhamma as opposed to some of the other things that we could be doing with our time, is that it is a way of life that is skillful. A way of life that the Buddha talked about as good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end. It's worth our pursuit, it's worth our effort, and it's worth our energy. And it does tame the mind. But we do a lot of that taming of the mind through taming of our lives. I really think that, that that can't be be overlooked. I remember that when I was still fairly new to, to Buddhism, I practiced alone for a long time. I, I practiced mostly based off of what I could find in books. And I was reading books from every single tradition, every single perspective, and I had no way of knowing who was someone worth following and who wasn't. And so I had my head filled with a lot of conflicting ideas. Ideas that seemed to not be even the same tradition, the same path. It seemed like it was all over the place. And so I was put in the position of trying to find the right way through, the right way to practice. And it often meant that I was also practicing alone. And so when I would tell people about this Buddhist path and tell them about things like uh, precepts and things like renunciation, qualities like heedfulness. There was this sense of, wow, that's a, a really strange way to live. Do you mean you're not going to be drinking alcohol anymore? You're not going to join your friends going to, to gamble and who knows what else they're going to do in Vegas? You're not going to do any of those things? Well, no, I think I'm just going to spend the evening in meditating. Well, isn't well, that just sitting on the floor with your eyes closed? Well, on the outside, sure, that's what it looks like. But on the inside, what on the inside? And that's a hard thing to explain to others as well who don't meditate. What it feels like when we turn inward. When we practice meditation. And when we do it with a clear conscience from having lived a certain way. All of that makes a difference. But it can seem like a very strange way to live. And it could seem like a very limited way to live. 
the fact that we practice with restraint of the senses to other people seems very, very backwards and very limiting, life-denying. This is the kind of language some people might use. It often reminds me of that, you know, childhood story, or maybe not so childish these days, of, um, you know, the, the king whose town has gone insane. You know, the, the water had been spoiled. And so everyone drank the water and everyone became insane and had all sorts of crazy beliefs and delusions. But from their perspective, perspective rather, they were completely sane and it was the king that had gone mad because he had his own well in his castle. He had his own safe water supply. And to all of them, he looked like he had lost his mind. He looked like he had lost his way. He looked confused and strange to them. One way of resolving the story is that the king decides to go into town one day, drink some of the water himself in town, and then he regains his sanity, according to the people in the town. But for us as Buddhists, if we really want to see results from the path, at the beginning have to be a lot like that king. People are going to have a lot of weird opinions about what we do and how we spend our time. And it might seem backwards and strange and life-denying. It's one of the things I hear most about Buddhism from people on the outside is how negative Buddhism is and how life-denying it is. But then you're in that castle, safe and secure and sane, which is not necessarily a bad thing. There's freedom in that too. One of the traditions that I see the most abandoned in American Buddhism is the practice of uh, uposatha. Now, if you don't know what uposatha is, I don't blame you. There's a lot of Buddhists all over the place that don't know what uposatha is. So uposatha is the practice of staying at the monastery or staying at home and practicing the, uh, the Buddha's teachings diligently and following the eight precepts. In some traditions, they now call this uh, poya instead. But in Pali, it was referred to as uposatha and still is uh, for those who uh, you know, use the, the traditional language in the Pali canon. And the idea was that here we are living in the world as, as lay people, as villagers or householders. There's a lot of ways of referring to lay people in the Pali canon. But people who had chosen to be disciples of the Buddha, people who had chosen to follow the Buddha's teachings, weren't just householders anymore. And they weren't just villagers anymore. But they were upasakas and upasikas dedicated followers who sat beside. In fact, if you translate upasaka, that's what it means. It means to sit beside and listen. So these were people who listened to the Buddha's teachings and applied them to their lives as lay people. 
But even in the Buddha's lifetime, he knew how difficult that would be. Which is why that the, these were not lay people who practiced off on their own, without a sense of community, and without a way of practicing more deeply, at least some of the time. He made sure that these upasakas and upasikas were a part of the fourfold assembly. That they were a part of this grouping of monks and nuns and dedicated lay followers. That that was the community of Buddhists. And there are teachings from the Buddha in the Pali Canon where he does speak to his lay followers, his upasakas, and tells them that they should also strive for practicing diligently, that they should practice for the hope of seclusion and rapture, piti, the kind of happiness that comes from meditation. And he also taught them that some of the time they should try living the way monks live, living the way arahants live, fully enlightened beings live. And he instructed that in the practice of uposatha, which corresponds to the moon phases. And nowadays, given how we don't live by the moon cycle anymore, it roughly equates to one day a week, a full 24-hour period of day and night of dedicated practice, that the Buddha felt that that was the, the bare minimum for an upasaka or upasika, for a dedicated lay follower of the teachings. And that in itself involves thinking about the Dharma in a really profound way and practicing in a really profound way and following the precepts in a profound way. So when someone decides to practice on one of these days, one day of the week of dedicated practice, they begin by reflecting on and recollecting the three gems. They think about the Buddha the Dharma, and the Sangha. They also think about their own actions in a positive way. That when we're practicing Uposatha, we don't think about all the things that we've done wrong in our lives. We think about all the things we've done right. And we use that as motivation for further right action, skillful action in our lives. And then we also think about rebirth and how some people have lived lives so well that they've been reborn as devas, as, as spirits in heavenly realms. And that, in the sense, we think about how it's good to be good and good gets rewarded one way or the other. Whether or not we believe in the devil realm, there's at least this belief that there is a reward in being good, even if the reward is only on the inside. It's something to think about. And with these, each of these reflections, the Buddha thought about it in terms of cleansing the mind. That by reflecting and contemplating on the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, by contemplating on one's good, skillful actions, by contemplating the Devas, that one was cleansing the mind. And he corresponded each one to a different kind of cleansing. He talked about contemplating the Buddha and reflecting on the Buddha's qualities as washing the head, cleansing the head. He talked about uh, reflecting on the Dhamma as cleansing one's body. He talked about uh, reflecting on the, dhamma, the Sangha as cleansing one's clothes and reflecting on one's good actions as cleansing a mirror 
And now this one, I think, is really important to, to think on. Because when the Buddha talks about mirrors, he's talking about what mirrors do, and they reflect. In his first teaching to his son Rahula, he uses the imagery of the mirror to talk about how one should always reflect on one's actions. So when we reflect on the good we've done, on the good we are doing, and on the good we can do, we have the potential to do, it is as if we are cleaning this mirror. So we reflect and truly see ourselves and our potential. And then with the devas, it's, uh, it's like cleansing gold, the way you purify gold is a way of thinking about it. And so these are all the ways that we can reflect and think on everything as we are endeavoring to practice more skillfully and to live with restraint. And then we move onward to the practice of the eight precepts. Now, the eight precepts are almost identical to the five precepts that many already know. In fact, I saw something in the chat box about the fifth precept, and I'll talk about that as well. Now, what's important to keep in mind is that other traditions that we might be familiar with, other religions we may have practiced, when they have rules to follow, for starters, they are rules, and they come from a place of you being... uh, told how to do and what to be and all sorts of things that feels oppressive, feels tight, and it's the kind of thing that people don't want to listen to. When precepts are discussed, though, in Buddhism, they're discussed always as as training rules, something that someone undertakes for their own benefit, something that they see as a benefit to themselves. And in the language used when the Buddha talks about uposatha, of practicing diligently in this way at least one day a week, He talks about it as someone reflecting on the qualities of an arahant and how an arahant lives. And the precepts are then taken not as something I need to do to control myself, but rather to emulate the actions of someone we respect, someone who is admirable to us. Essentially, we're looking at those that we view as a kalyanamita, a spiritual friend, an admirable friend. We look at our admirable friends both the ones that are alive now that are an inspiration to us, but also those that have lived in the path, in the past, rather. Uh, those who have followed the path through to its end. And when we look at those precepts, we look at them in terms of emulating their behavior, emulating their skillful action. So it comes with a feeling of aspiration. It comes with a feeling of, this is how other people who are noble have lived, and I want to be like them. And I can be like them. There's a quality that often gets misunderstood, and I've even joked about it myself, that one of the qualities that's one of the last ones to be let go of before someone becomes an arahant is conceit. And we often think in this culture of conceit is a very bad thing. Because it can be. Because it's the way we compare ourselves to others. And it's usually in a real snooty way, or a really anxious way, or a really negative way. We can really get down on ourselves and get down on others, and we, we use it to, to have a high horse sometimes, to be on a high horse. But there's also a skillful way to, to utilize conceit, which is the sense that you can compare yourself to others, but in a good way. You can look at people who are noble. You can look at people who are admirable, who live the way you want to live, who actually have found a stable internal happiness that is reliable, you could look at these noble people, these admirable people, and say, I can be like them. I have what it takes. I have those qualities as well. 
because part of what having a, this path be fabricated means is that it's built on all the stuff we already have now. This body, this mind, this heart, the qualities in us already exist there as a potential that we can cultivate, we can develop. And so we can compare ourselves to those who actually have cultivated and developed and say, yes, I want to be like that person. And you can look at them and see how they live. So in the Buddha's time, when he was instructing his upasakas, he was saying this to them as well, that look at these people and emulate their actions. And when we look at people like arahants or even monastics, we see people that do not kill, that do not steal, that do not engage in sexual activity, that do not lie, do not become intoxicated, and then we have the other three. You'll notice that the third one changes from being, uh, you know, to not misuse sexual activity to just uh, to being celibate. Luckily for the uh, lay people, that just means one day a week. I think we can manage. And then we have the other three, which have to do about the way monks and arahants usually live, which is eating at the appropriate time, only eating between 6 a.m. and noon, having your eating period within and then fasting the rest of the day. And man, if I can manage, I think everyone else can too. And then we also get to the, how we spend our time. On these uposata days, on these poya days, how are we spending our time? So we're not, oh, like we're not trying to spend time making sure that we're beautiful. We're not trying to make our hair look a certain way, make sure we put on that cologne or, or uh, some type of perfume. We're also not engaging in, in TV shows or... Uh, trying to go to parties and things like that. We're, we're dedicating ourselves to the Dharma for the time, so we're setting those things aside. Now, I got to tell you, before the ability to record TV and have uh, on-demand viewing, this one hurt a bit more if your favorite show was on a Sunday, let's say, and you decided that was your the day. How are you going to be able to watch whatever show it was? And now we really have no excuse if you want to watch the Great British Baking Show and you decided Friday was your uposatha, well, it'll still be there the next day. It's Netflix. So we have even less of an excuse in that regard. The other one is that we uh, try not to think so highly of ourselves that we need lots of comfort in our chairs and our beds. Cozy up that night after a hard day of practice and several pillows and a nice, comfy, thick blanket might see what it's like to live more simply and have a lower bed and just use just what we need. Just the pillow for our head, just the one blanket to keep the cold at bay. And that in itself can be some good practice. I remember someone asking uh, my, my teacher about that because they were very concerned about, well, what do I do? I have this, this, this bed that's on a frame and everything. It says, no, no low beds. And the teacher says, well, you know, I mean, if the legs are only so high, that's okay. You know, that's fine. Uh, but, I mean, if you really want to go for it, you know, just pull that mattress right off the bed frame, put the mattress on the floor for the night, go for it. I honestly think that, for the most part, our normal beds are fine. But maybe if we have that huge body pillow that we snuggle up to, we can probably put that aside for the night and, and sleep more simply. And so I bring all of this up because it is one of those practices, the uposatha, that has been neglected, I think, uh, in many ways, uh, not only in the West, it happens all over the world now that the people have set this kind of stuff aside, precisely because of how it appears to others. 
because restraint of the senses seems like a bad thing now. We seem to think that if we want to do whatever we want, we should have every ability to do whatever we want. And that means that we should also, on the one hand, be able to be spiritually enlightened, awakened, and free. But on the other, able to be covered head, head to toe in peanut butter, metaphorically. You know, we can just live our lives however we want. But we see how that's happened. We've done that already. And if we take the Buddha's teachings on this in terms of rebirth, we recognize that we've had all the freedom we've wanted in the conventional sense. And it hasn't worked out because here we still are. We haven't found a secure happiness yet, the kind that doesn't need to be replenished all the time, that doesn't take from others. That we're born into this life even as a human, which in the Buddhist cosmology, there are worse places, you bet. But even here, we're born in pursuit of happiness. We keep rushing after it all the time, chasing after it. That's why the Buddha talks about samsara as a wandering on. It's ceaseless. It's endless. And if you knew the full extent of it, you'd be exhausted, you'd be weary, you'd be tired. So we develop the path the way we do because we move away from being pursuers of happiness to being producers of happiness. That's what we do when we meditate. That's what we do when we follow the path, the Eightfold Path. And if you notice, even though one way of looking at the path is with concentration at the very top and the rest being the supports, all of them are necessary, and so many of them are about our actions, the way we live, the way we act, our mind and our bodies what we think, what we say, what we do. And when we practice something like uposatha, when we set this side a time for a deeper practice, when we actually allow restraint of the senses to lead to passion and delight born out of seclusion, the passion and delight of meditating in a secluded place, we have managed for a time to set aside the defilements Set aside the hindrances. Set aside all the things that, that prick and pull and tug and bite at us. It's like, it's like we're covered in lice or something all the time. And when we meditate and, and practice, when we allow ourselves this space, we find freedom from that kind of feeling. And at first, it's a temporary thing. But it's something that we can reliably count on to do again and again. And over time, it builds into something deeper, it builds into something truer, and it builds into something more lasting that carries through into every moment of our lives. Until such a time when we have completed the goal, we have achieved the goal of the path, and it's like that, like that. We can't even talk about it in terms of time. It's simply like that. That's what we're after. So, can we uh, tame our mind without taming our lives? Uh, probably not. But Buddhism, down to its very core, is about freedom. Freedom in the truest sense. Happiness in the truest sense. Peace in the truest sense. One of the ways uh, I've been able to do that is through the practice of Uposatha. 
Uh, I've practiced it both on my own and at temples and monasteries that still continue that practice today in the traditional sense. And also uh, overextended uh, retreats when that's been possible. And hopefully that'll be possible again soon. But even if all we've got is that practice at home to follow the oposita, it's something worth pursuing. To see, to come and see if living such a life is truly restrictive or the actual, actual answer to whether or not we can be free. I'll end it there. Thank you for listening.